2: Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the updates on the great writers we have coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to see photos of the studio and the cocktails getting made, check out my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please leave a comment. I want to hear about the writers you want to hear on this show. I've been getting a lot of great booking ideas from you guys.
0: Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work and behind the scenes revelations.
2: Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host Doug Brunt. Today we're talking with Fiona Davis. Fiona is the best-selling author of seven novels of historical fiction, including The Lions of Fifth Avenue, and her latest, The Spectacular. I first came to know about Fiona the same way I come to know about many great authors, which is through my mom and her book club, who were all raving about her. So, Fiona, it's an honor to have you in here today. Thanks for coming in.
3: Oh, thank you to your mom. (laughs) That's fantastic.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm also excited about The Cocktail Choice today because it's a classic, and yet I have never had one.
3: Really? So today, yes.
2: Really? Never had a sidecar.
3: Yeah. It, you know, I love the idea that it's from, you know, I think it was invented after World War One or something. And, you know, one of the things that's great about New York is there's, this, there's these great bars like, do you know, Do Not Disturb in the West Village?
2: Is that like one of those speakeasy prohibition yeah, bars? Kind of,
3: yeah, it's in a brownstone and you go down the stairs and... Mm-hmm. Um, and it opens up and it's this beautiful bar and like the ceiling is painted a glossy red Ooh. and you just feel like you've stepped back in time. And so a drink like this feels like it's right for that kind of environment. And yes. for me, that's a way of kind of slipping back in time. Yes. Which know? of
2: course is your, mm, yeah. you know, your, your historical fiction novels, which are so evoking of these time periods. This is great.
3: I think that's why I write just cause I can't time travel. So this is the closest <laughs> thing and time travel while drinking, you know?
2: Yes. All right, so I'm putting lemon, so so listeners know it's lemon juice, Cointreau Cognac, shaken up, which I'm about to shake, yeah. and then uh, served in a cocktail glass with an orange rind.
3: Exactly.
2: All right. So is this like a after-dinner drink some evenings
3: it's, or, or more know, when you're
2: out and about?
3: It's kind of a, a winter drink, to be honest, mm. um, you know, like a, a winter before drink before dinner you know that kind of thing before you go out and eat and have your wine and that kind of thing this is just the warm-up
2: all right now i found even with the twist or the orange rind it's nice to like get around the rim of the glass a little bit
3: yeah and you can even yeah squeeze a little bit in there too yeah the hint of. all
2: right here we go (laughs) We are going to sound very different after. Know, it's not <laughs> after finishing this.
3: It's not a uh, a light drink.
2: Okay, I love you those too. glasses too. They're terrific. It's a, you know sometimes the stemware with the big stem is risky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which one
3: would which, you like? Which the that one's mine. One, okay, yeah. thank you.
2: Cheers. Cheers, Fiona. Great to meet you.
3: Nice to meet you too.
2: I like it. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's delicious. Right? Well,
3: wow. oh, that's, that's well done. Oh. That's really well done. Oh, Thank you. Mm-hmm.
2: All right. Now, I, it's always a risk for me because I do some research on Wikipedia and I say, so you were born in... Blah, blah, and they're like, no, no, that's totally wrong. And I'm like, ah, damn Wikipedia again. <laughs> I but I did read that you were born in Canada, but then raised mostly in places around the U.S. And in my notes, I have um, New Jersey, Texas, Utah.
3: Yeah, yeah. My parents were nomads. Um, my, my mom and dad are both English. And my, they moved to Canada when my dad was finishing up a PhD. Mm-hmm. And that's when my brother and I were born. But, I, you know, they, we moved from there, from there when I was three. So it's not like that's home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then they came here and we've, yeah, New Jersey, Utah, Texas, I've been in such a weird range of states. I just never knew how to, how to what, speak. What you was know? that?
2: Were you following careers? And... He's
3: a, he was a chemical engineer. Mm-hmm. And so he was transferred and then, you know, switched companies and ended up in Texas.
2: Okay. And then I read that you came to New York City originally to act.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I went to William & Mary and after that um, got accepted to an acting school here called Circle in the Square. Mm. And it was so much fun. It was two years of, you know... Doing scenes and rolling around on the floor and pretending you're a tiger. Right. I, you know, almost. So my parents, I'm but sure. But you were in a so
2: real acting find. school. I, You know, when I moved here, I knew a number of people who would say, Oh, I'm taking acting classes. And they basically would be in some little thing with someone who might have been in a Law and Order episode <laughs> or something. And they're like, Now I'm going to teach it, even though I've never actually. <laughs> but you were like legitimately in.
3: Yeah, yeah. You know, it was a two year program profession. with some. Great great um, teachers uh, mm. it was it was incredible I, I learned a lot and and afterwards we I kind of joined this theater company that formed from a class at the school and so we were this theater company and we, we would do off Broadway and wow um, you know we'd do everything you'd be sweeping the stage or selling the tickets or you'd be the lead and it was this wonderful collaborative fun effort it was were wonderful. you always
2: able to Do that. I I feel like getting up on stage. That's the real acting. It's one thing to do TV where you can say cut at any time and do it all over again. And you know, could even when you were little, were you the type of person who could do that?
3: Yeah, because I was so shy in real life. I was such a shy kid, and I never really quite fit in because I never knew. You know, I I would act as if I were in Utah, but I was in New Jersey, and that's a very Mm. different vibe. And so I, I just never really found my place. And it wasn't until I found the drama department in high school and I thought, oh, this is great. You can be someone else and, you know, learn the lines. And then you get to do all these shows with all your best friends. It was fantastic.
2: It's almost like putting on a superhero costume. It's no longer you on the line. You're this other thing.
3: Yeah. In fact, when I started doing book talks f- as an author, I was much more nervous mm-hmm. because suddenly it's just it's me. It's just you. You're and not my words. a character. Yeah, yeah. There's no character oh, to so hide behind.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's great. So then... It wasn't too long after that, though, that you changed uh, sort of directions and got a uh, journalism degree from Columbia.
3: Yeah, I did uh, the theater for about eight to ten years, I'd say, mm-hmm. and then um, yeah, I, I I wasn't I I knew I knew I was an okay actress. I was an intelligent actress, but I wasn't kind of this raw, you know actress who's going to go and, you know, like like Jessica Chastain or, you know, these people who are just incredible and, and can lose themselves in the part. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I just wasn't that kind of actor. And so I started thinking, you know, maybe there's something else I want to do, but I had no idea. And so I actually went to NYU and I took a Briggs Myers test because oh my this gosh, was before yeah. the internet. Yeah. So that kind of said to me, Okay, you answer all these questions, and it's a, like a two-hour test, and then they bring you back, and they said, "Okay, you should either be a journalist or a cop." <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I am not going to be a cop. <laughs>
2: Interesting. Uh, yeah. So then you went into journalism. Were you thinking, you know, in front of the camera or print, or what was the idea?
3: My first thought was in front of the camera, just mm-hmm. having been an actor that that would maybe be a natural progression but you know the the program at Columbia the master's program is so intense and fantastic and so suddenly there was this whole new vista of things you could do because then the the internet was really just starting up and Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. you had what they called new media which was digital media yeah and so I kind of got more into that during my time there
2: yeah which we're still figuring out you know it seems like the news business has changed so much, even just over the last eight, ten years. How people are consuming it, where they find it, the many different kinds of places you can go for
3: it—it's incredible. I, and I think we could have never have predicted it. You know, I graduated in two thousand, and it was just a completely different world. Things mm. have changed completely.
2: Yeah. Do you still have the hankering for acting in some way? Have you let go of it completely? Because you, now you're on career three, of course. It was some, some journalism, but now this amazing novel career.
3: Yeah, no. I I don't miss it at all. I I think there's so many things that are out of your control. You know, you're mm-hmm. just one cog in the wheel when you're an actor. You know, there's the the set design, the the director, the the writing. Mm-hmm. And so you can only control so much. And then when I found writing and realized I can t- control an entire world, right? Yeah. I decide if someone is happy or sad or whether they live or die, and I'm the one in control. And to me, that was just eye-opening and I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert. Mm-hmm. So I could spend all day at home alone.
2: <laughs> yeah, I I know what you mean. I really, I embrace my alone time. I love having a little bit of private, quiet me time. And I I know writers who procrastinate and they think, oh, I'd do anything rather than sit down there and start this thing. It's so hard to get started. I'm like, oh my gosh, I run to my desk. I love that time.
3: <laughs> yeah. There's something about it. And and also as you're working in the world and, you know, you're out and taking the subway or doing whatever, you're living that life, but you also have this entirely other world in your head mm-hmm. that's constantly spinning as you're trying to figure out, okay, there's that plot point's not working or, you know, that character's not right. And yeah. to have To be able to do that, to balance two worlds, is really—I find that so fulfilling. Yeah,
2: yeah. And to your point, you get to be the set designer and the costume designer and the—you know—the whole whole thing all in one.
3: Until your editor, of course, gets their hands (laughs) on it, (laughs) as you know, right? True,
2: right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and sometimes your early readers, who are you know, candid, shall we say? Oh yeah, (laughs) brutally so.
3: Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, it's nice because you know you have a number of books out as well, and so you reach a critical mass where I think those. In those reviews that can be you know snarky or whatever just get mm-hmm. kind of lost in the shuffle because there's just so many different viewpoints out there which is great i don't think everyone should love every book mm-hmm. um but you, you know, know it's
2: funny the bad reviews do come in I have, a friend of mine uh who's been on the show and, and you think you may know Amor Tolles, gave me some advice i i got a bad review and he's had them too although not many for him and uh he repeated a line to me that he heard from someone else, and I can't remember who it was. Like, it might have been like Richard Russo or somebody like that told him. And he told me that a bad review should ruin your breakfast, but not your lunch.
3: <laughs> I love that. You know, that. It's, you
2: know like, read it, absorb it, feel down about it, but, you know, move on quickly.
3: So, I, remember, I remember hearing someone talk about how, as humans, we're, we're hardwired to look for danger. Mm-hmm. And so we remember, word for word, the bad reviews, but the good ones... <laughs> It's kind of like oh yeah oh yeah and there was a nice one in that but it's so weird how the bad ones can imprint on your brain.
2: Oh my god. In a way I, and I think yeah.
3: it's just the way we are that that's you know something that that we feel like needs more importance but it really doesn't.
2: Yeah. So what year was your journalism degree?
3: It was 2000.
2: 2000. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you, so your first novel The Dollhouse was I think 2016. Yes. Which yeah. was a sensational great reviews sold well. And then you've been on pretty much a book a year pace since then.
3: Yeah, and these days it's a year and a half. Um, mm-hmm. The past two books, just because I need a little more time because there's more travel mm-hmm. now and more going out. You and got speaking you gotta to do people. a victory lap
2: now after your book comes out. <laughs>
3: yeah, and that so that balances it out nicely. I feel like yeah. I can put the the time into it because a book a year is just too fast That's for me. Very fast. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Especially you know, so when you you do your book tour and you, you do need to like. I don't know, put some energy into that these days, too. Of course, your publisher is like, get out there and sell, sell. So,
3: yeah. And, and it's wonderful, you know, there's, it's wonderful the way book clubs have picked it up. And, mm-hmm. and there's, a, there's a real lovely audience out there who will read the next book, you yeah. know, and they're eager to get it. And so it's so nice to go out and meet them and say thank you and yeah. be able to talk. And,
2: and you were, you are really developing a big, big following, which is great to see. So that that's actually good leaping off into process, if we could. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you do so well is bring a sense of place onto the page. And I know you do a ton of research, primary and secondary research for that. For For example, with The Spectacular, I know, which is uh, based, lots of the book based in Radio City and explores the history of the Rockettes. You did tons of interviews for that. Can you Tell us a little bit about your research process.
3: Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it helps having been a journalist, because I remember the first day at the J school, they basically said, "Okay, go outside and interview three strangers. And Mm. we were all thinking, no, no. (laughs) And, And then you just kind of lose the fear of that. And it's so helpful with this, because, you know, if I need someone who has danced as a rockette in the 40s or 50s or 60s. I'll find them through people and then just have these glorious conversations where these women would share all their memories about what it was like to dance on that stage. When, mm-hmm. And this is a time when women were teachers or nurses or wives.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And all of them said, every one of them said it was the best time of my life because uh, I was independent, you know, dancing on that stage, making my own money. It was just so, you know, I remember one talked about her favorite memory was walking down the middle of Fifth Avenue in the at midnight with all her friends arm in arm, singing at the top of their lungs.
2: Oh my gosh, that's it, great! Yeah. I, I feel like that could be on a postcard or some sort <laughs> of like rockets history pamphlet or something.
3: Exactly, exactly. It was just, and so it was really wonderful. And I'd ask them, you know, okay, what's the dirt? Any, you mm-hmm. know, what really was going on backstage? And they said, no, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience.
2: Wow. What's well, so clear you love doing the research piece of it, which is important. You know, you, you do so much of it. in such a time-consuming part of the process for you. But I think it helps you get everything onto the page with more force and more credibility.
3: I think so. And, and you know, when you're writing historical fiction, you don't want to describe, you know, a room for three pages or, mm-hmm. you know, or uh, what they're wearing for one page. Yeah. You need to really make your point and then get into the plot. At least for me, I like a book that moves. Yeah. And and so it's helpful because when you talk to someone, they give you all that gold. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, one of the the rockets talked about how the last conductor of the night, he would speed up so he could make his train home. And so they'd have to start dancing faster and faster. <laughs> and so that kind of thing, you put that there and then you feel like you're Yes, the, sometimes the it can
2: be the smallest little thing, but mm-hmm. it, it it lays the foundation for the whole scene. And you also balance it so well, because we, we're there's some writer on a while ago who's done some historical pieces. And he was saying, you know, it's got to be a balance. So he's like, sure, in the 1950s, everyone said swell. But if you say swell over and over again, or if he lit back, you know, he leaned back and lit his Chesterfield. It's like <laughs> you can go too far with it, too. Like, yes, that was all true, but you do need to balance it. So as a reader... And in your case, you do it so well to like evoke it, but also keep it moving.
3: Yeah. And, and that's the thing. You want to capture the rhythm of the speech patterns of that time. But you're right. You don't want to overdo it and, and you know, prove I've done all this work. Here mm-hmm. it is. Yeah,
2: You don't want to like fling the research at the, at the reader. Right. Yeah. And,
3: and for me, writing characters in the past, what I'll do is tap into my mother's voice because just as a, because she has an English accent, it just elevates it a little more formal than, than we would speak now. Yeah, And that's enough, I feel, to make you feel like you're back in time without too many Chesterfields.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so a couple of uh, more technical questions. Do you write by hand or do you key it in?
3: It's a mix. What I do is I sketch out the scene on a. It has to be a yellow legal pad with a pencil. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. Like mm-hmm. it, I'm so married to that legal pad. And I'll sketch it out just in my head, just, you know, stream of consciousness. And then I use Scrivener which is an amazing software program, especially if you're doing something with a lot of research because you can have your manuscript on the page. You can have each chapter where you can go with one click, jump from one chapter to another. Mm-hmm. So it's so different from Word I where you're scrolling try- around. How do you spell that? I haven't even... It's S-C...
2: <laughs> pen. There we go. S-C.
3: S-C-R-I-V-E-N-E-R. Mm-hmm. Uh, Okay. And, and then, if you have research, you can, you know, if I, if there's a dress, I know a character's wearing, I can have it, and with one click, it fills up half my screen, mm-hmm. and so I can describe it on the top half where my manuscript is, mm-hmm. and then with one click, jump away from that to a menu from the 1820s that I need to access, and so everything's in one place.
2: So this is a good tool for nonfiction as well, where you can track your sources Absolutely. and all that sort of thing. Okay.
3: Absolutely, and there's it does way more than I do. It's it's you know I use it pretty basically, but I know there's even more features that you can do with it. And a lot of historical fiction authors I know love it.
2: Okay. I'll, I'll have to, you know, because as, as I was doing my nonfiction book, I was had stacks of index cards and I'm like, oh my God, I'm sure someone has invented software and someone who knows software better than I do is enjoying a much easier experience with all this stuff than yeah. I am right now.
3: They even have one one part that's index cards.
2: Oh, yeah. up, there we go. You're oh, all this set. Is right up my alley. Okay. <laughs> um, do you outline ahead of time?
3: I go crazy with outlining. Yeah. I'm you know, I I can't imagine sitting and facing a blank page and seeing where it goes. For me, I I do all that research and that starts giving me ideas for characters and plot mm-hmm. and plot twists and the beginning and the ending. And once I reach a critical mass, I tend to hear the first line in my head and then I will start outlining. So I figure out who the characters are, what they want, what I can put in their way mm-hmm. because you don't want to make it easy. And then, it's, if it's a dual timeline novel, I will outline each timeline separately. And there's usually a mystery. And so, there are days that I have to either drink a lot at night of sidecars or <laughs> eat a lot of chocolate just to get through it because it's so hard to make those two stories work together mm-hmm. without giving away too much in one timeline versus the other. Right. You know, and, and so, but once that's down, I have a roadmap. And that means that if I'm having a tough so- time in, say, one scene, I'm I know I'm looking forward to the you know the big one that's coming up uh, mm-hmm. a few days later. We
2: did it beautifully in the spectacular because you did have the two timelines but each was so additive to the other and set the other up really well to you know, keep the plot thrust moving forward,
3: yeah, and that one's a little different where the the second timeline it's not as much as some of the other books, so it's really an older character kind of weighing in on her mm-hmm. her life, and so it's a little more that I want a chance
2: to reflect on it a little, yeah bit. exactly,
3: yeah. and i I knew I wanted because there's more of a thriller aspect to it that I had to keep it streamlined, and I wanted to keep it in the fifties
2: mm-hmm.
3: mm-hmm. yeah,
2: how about we touched on this earlier, but trusted early readers who do you who do you go to and
3: Yeah, I I use a a freelance editor who I send it to after maybe two rounds. Mm -hmm. So the second draft. And that's really to just get a general idea of what am I missing? Because you can't see the forest for the trees when, Mm. you know, you're embedded in a story like that. And so she'll give me kind of the basics of this is working. This isn't. This character is, you know, and then I'll go back and redo it. And by then, I'm feeling kind of panicky. So then I send it to my mother because she likes everything. And she'll just say, oh, it's lovely. That's, you know? that's
2: the confidence yeah. boost to get you back up. You know, That's a great tip for listeners out there who might have a manuscript in the work. There is so much talent out there working as a freelance editor. As the big houses, skinny down, really talented editors go work freelance. And they can not only give you great feedback on a manuscript, but they also are fairly well connected still in the industry and might be able to direct you To your next steps.
3: Yeah. And I got got into it because when the book, you know, I I got an agent and she wanted to represent me, but she said, you know, we need to work on this. Mm -hmm. And so she sent me off to a freelance editor Mm -hmm. and that system just seemed to work. After that, it goes to my agent and then eventually to my editor. So I I have kind of a few people that I run it by, but I don't um, I used to send it to writer friends. But mm-hmm. I don't do that anymore, just because I the timing. I yeah. need to speed things up. Yeah.
2: Just one last thing for listeners: I haven't looked at it in a while. But what's the going rate for freelance setters? When I, last I looked, it's like three or four dollars a page, or something like that. Yeah,
3: you know, I, I it could be from you know a thousand to some are like five thousand. I I don't do to give 5, you 000. a
2: full feedback. Yeah, you know, do you want a full line edit? Yeah,
3: yeah, it depends what you want. Okay. Um. So it there's a real gamut, mm-hmm. and there's some really great people out there, and yeah, yeah, they're very right. helpful.
2: Coffee sidecars. What do you? Would you write in the mornings, evenings?
3: I write in the mornings, if and that's I can. right. You,
2: we were just talking before the show. You're off coffee.
3: Yeah, no caffeine. Yep, yeah. yep. But um, I'll have an herbal tea, and I I try and get right to it. But I tend to do more administrative stuff for about a half hour, just to get it out of the way, mm-hmm. clear my head, and then if I'm doing that first draft, it's you know a good two to three hours, and then I just have to stop.
2: Now, by the time you're starting the first draft, you must have stacks of interview notes and research and other things too to sort of I don't know organize yeah. and get get it's into all on form. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's all the thing. Scrivener. It's all in that's Scrivener. Right. So
3: you know, if I if I did an interview with a, a security guard at the Met, yeah. I can click right on it and there it is. And oh yeah, that's the phrase he used. Oh, right. It's oh, God, really that is
2: good. Yeah, Scrivener. and I guess we're saving
3: trees. So. <laughs>
2: right. <laughs> Um, and then do you revise as you go or do you, are you more of like a sprint to the finish line person and then come back and do a a big revision?
3: I tend to do, I do about, let's see, I would say around, uh, 1500 words a day Mm -hmm. for four or five days a week. And that usually finishes a chapter and then I'll go back and revise that chapter, but a a quick one, not, not in depth just to clean it up enough. So it feels like it has the rhythm that I want it to have. Mm -hmm. And then I'll go back and do about ten different rounds of, of edits after that wow. first draft's done.
2: Wow. Mm-hmm. So by the time it gets in there it's it's pretty pretty clean copy. <laughs> it is. It's
3: pretty clean. But there's always something, you know, there's always yeah. something to play with or to, you know, switch around once once I hear back from my editor or my agent.
2: Yeah. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back. Let's talk more specifically about The Spectacular, your most recent book, um, which goes behind the scenes of the Rockettes and incredible, beautiful history of Radio City. I mean, it's just such a joy to read this. If you are a fan of New York and architecture and things like that, you really do such a nice job of weaving that into the story. But on a you know more of a cultural note, it's set in the 50s, as you mentioned. And one of the things you explore in here, you really sort of tackle the issue of the Spoken and unspoken misogyny of the time um, with the female characters and some of the dancers and Rockettes, and you show that it can happen even in the relationship, a loving relationship between father and daughter. There can be, I think there's this good quote. By um, I wrote down Michael Gerson, who does the soft bigotry of low expectations. Like oh, they just that's brilliant believe <laughs> they they can't really do it. Like mm-hmm. we wouldn't even want them to try, you know. So I thought you just did such a nice job of that. I, I was you. thinking Mad Men a little bit, just because it made you have that scene like, oh, I can't believe this is how it was.
3: Yeah, and and talking to Rockettes and having them say, yeah, my father did not approve. He said I could do it for a year, and then I had to come home. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the final word, you know, mm-hmm. you, that's what you did. You obeyed the patriarchy. Yeah. And, and so my character is kind of fighting against that and goes off and does her own thing. And it leaves her stranded in many ways Yeah, because the, you know, when her father rejects her, she has no one else to turn to, um, and has to kind of create her own family. At the same time, there are people in the book like Russell Markert, who's based on, who is the actual founder of the Rockettes, who founded them in 1925 and was their director and choreographer until 71 when he retired. And everyone spoke of him as such a wonderful father figure. Mm -hmm. And so all these women who'd left their homes and come to the city had someone they could talk to and who they trusted and who would take care of them. I think his contribution really made the Rockettes what they are today.
2: Through your interviews, was that a consistent theme from some of the people you spoke to, like this, you know, that night, the mad men treatment of women in the workplace
3: oh yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah. with all my books i'm I'm just completely surprised at how women's voices and agency have changed over time mm-hmm. and then how they haven't
2: <laughs> yeah. it's a great history of the uh of the building and the time. And I just I love uh, hearing the history of how the Rockets got started and grew into this huge thing was really fun to read all that.
3: Yeah. You know, and, and what I, I learned, which surprised me, was that, you know, today the Rockets basically do the Christmas show. Mm-hmm. But back then it was a movie palace. So they did four shows a day and they did that for three or four weeks straight before they got a, a week off. So it was this full time job. It required so much technique and discipline. It was
2: poor toes.
3: I know. I know. <laughs> and the kick line, they did six hundred kicks a day.
2: Oh my gosh.
3: And so it was it was just this really demanding, incredibly you know, powerful thing that they did.
2: There were some really cool aspects of it, too, of, you know, they have to be a in a certain range of height and the, the uniformity that's required. Like, don't stand out. That's not what we want. Don't be a special dancer. Just be exactly this kind of dancer.
3: Exactly. And if, they, if you do that right, I don't know if you've ever seen the Rockettes, but when they are up there doing exactly the same thing and they form into that kick line and they start kicking, you automatically have this kind of gut punch yeah. reaction. It creates you know? a
2: whole greater than the sum of. Parts, yeah, you know? there's
3: something to it of watching, watching the the synchronicity of it that yeah. is really visceral.
2: We did. We took the kids. It's actually been my gosh, many years now. Maybe it was six or seven or more years ago that we went to the Christmas spectacular with the Rockets. We're due to go back again because our kids there now probably go. don't even remember it. <laughs>
3: yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it's incredible. And and you know, for me, the fun was creating the dancer Marion, who is larger than life mm-hmm. and has to pull herself in in order to fit in, and yeah. how hard that is for her and where that leads her.
2: Yeah. There was one one thing I made a note to ask you about in there of there's this very nice restaurant, It's like the inn restaurant in New York City in the 50s and so in order to save a parking spot for the VIPs coming through they put out a fake fire hydrant and then when their VIP guest comes on they pull the fire hydrant off and there's this, you know, prime parking spot. Is that based on an interview and true yeah. story?
3: Yeah, it was a, a kind of a, a an Irish restaurant right across from Radio City Music Hall. Mhm. And yeah, the prop guys made this fake, <laughs> fake fire hydrant so that um, that the you know they could use that to, and, and that's where all the rockets would go to eat, and all the yeah. the guys would you know the stagehands would go there to have a, a beer after work, and so they were really close, and they're like, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll build you one.
2: That is a great <laughs> little detail to have in there, and and of course the book is filled with a 100- hundred hundreds of those. But I, I loved that one. I wonder if you could even get away with that today. I don't I know. know. I can't imagine that happening somehow. But. I
3: know. I know. It feels so 1950s. Yeah,
2: totally. <laughs> um, without giving away too much of the book, um, you introduce Parkinson's disease in the book. In a re- it's an incredibly powerful part of the book. And uh, you introduce that through characters in the novel. And I won't reveal more than that. But I also noticed in your acknowledgments that you Inform your readers that you have recently had a parkinson's diagnosis did yeah. you were you exhibiting symptoms and then went to to get uh checked or or was it just it came up randomly in a in a doctor yeah
3: yeah, you know it was during lockdown it was the summer of twenty twenty and um and I just noticed that my my hand shook when i hold held my phone mm-hmm. and I kind of ignored it for a while because we were all locked down you know you weren't going out so no one saw me shake mm-hmm. um other than my boyfriend, so it wasn't you know anything that seemed crazy. I just thought, well, I have a book coming out. I'm, you know, I'm hepped up. Yeah. Um, and then I, I was eventually, a friend of mine said, yeah, you should go see a doctor. So I went to my primary care and then a neurologist and then a movement disorder specialist. And, and you know, they, they said, yeah, that's, that's Parkinson's. And I thought, oh no, that can't be right. Yeah. You know, I'm far too young. But it strikes in the 50s and 60s. And I was 53 at the time. And I'm really lucky in that I respond really well to the medication at the moment. And there's this honeymoon period Mm. where the medication works beautifully. And I remember at my last appointment, I said to my doctor, you know, how long does the honeymoon stage last? And she said, do you want to know? And I said, no. And (laughs) and so, you know, I don't want it's so much about giving up control, which is authors, right? Mm -hmm. We control a Mm -hmm. world. And with this, it's a whole different thing of I don't know what's going to happen, you know, in five or ten years. And I'm really lucky my symptoms are, are really quite covered right now. Oh good. Um and you know, I've gotten to know the Michael J. Fox Foundation and I'm on their patient I'm council. Ask you about that, yeah. yeah, there's so much going on in terms of research and development. Yeah. So I think, you know, if, if now's the time to get it. I think there's gonna be some wonderful things coming down the pike.
2: Yeah. You know, it's like this uh, this Peter Atia book who who has a you know, his book is remains on the top of the charts and it's about health and longevity, you know, living well as long as you can and then yeah. And then, you know, sort of dropping out, but, you know, living well to the, you know, as close to the last day as you can. But he has this whole sort of thing that you can get, like, genetic testing. And so you can find out if you might be susceptible to Alzheimer's or things like Mm -hmm. that. And then, you know, if that's the case, there are things you can do. And I've been wrestling, like, to your point earlier, like, would you want to know? Like, do I want to know if I'm, like... Uh, you know, a candidate for Alzheimer's, or do I just want to try to live pretty well and right. enjoy my sidecars and right? Yes, <laughs> you know. exactly. So far, I haven't gotten any genetic testing done. I'm not sure I want to know anything.
3: Yeah, it, it's a big question. And you know, with something more serious like Huntington's, which is this really brutal neurological disorder, um, and there's a, a very you know one in one in a fifty percent chance that your children will have it if you have it. Mm-hmm. And so then you have these whole branches of families having to decide you know, whether to find this out. And that's a really brutal disease.
2: Well, that's so readers should know, listeners should know that this is an incredibly powerful part of the book and you handle it so well. The revelation that the character has in discovering the news and also exploring what it means for that person's loved ones and the people that have a genetic connection to that person and what it means for them. And he really, when I finished reading, I was like, wow. And then I was not at all surprised to read your acknowledgments and realize, you know, you're you're also living this because it's very powerful in the book.
3: Thank you. Yeah. You know, one thing is I'm writing about it in the 50s and 90s in the book. Mm-hmm. And so it was so different back then. Back then, if you were diagnosed with Parkinson's, you were told not to exercise, right? Because you might fall. And today we know that exercise actually slows the progression. And so you have all these Parkinson's patients out there boxing and swimming and doing incredible things, running marathons, because that's, you know, that's something you can do to hopefully slow it down.
2: Well, I'm glad you're hooked in with the Michael J. Fox Foundation. I know I have a few friends who've done a lot there. We will, we'll swap names later, but yes. um, they're doing good things over there. So yeah. that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, let's see. Wanted to, before we get into the lightning round, find out yeah. what is next for you. I know. You must be researching some things and getting ready for the next uh, the next great book. By the way, the last one, so, so listeners know, The Spectacular Fiona Davis. Go get it.
3: Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so the next one, I'm already kind of through the first draft, believe it or not, because there's such a lag time in between when you turn in one book and then mm-hmm. um, it actually comes out. So I, I've gotten a good head start on that. And that's set at the Met Museum. And that involved a trip to Egypt wow. for research, of course. Um, right. Which was inc- Never mind the tax write-off. Yeah. Off. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, and that was great. So I did that in April. And um, it takes place in two timelines, kind of the 30s from the point of view of an archaeologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the 70s, in 78, from the point of view of a woman who's now a curator, associate curator in the Egyptian wing. Mm-hmm. And then also from the point of view of an assistant to the Met Gala which in 1978 was run by Deanna Vreeland, who was quite a character, kind of the Anna Wintour of her day. Okay.
2: Was she in fashion? I don't, I don't know. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. And she, she was incredible. And so it's this mix of, I, I like to say, a mix of glamour and mummies. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll see how it goes. That's great.
2: Now, <laughs> 1930, I always associate this with more like British archaeology. Was it a British dig or an american archaeologist
3: Um, americans were there uh -hmm. for sure and and there it was a mix like almost everybody every country polish french everyone had someone in there because everybody was there was so much to be uncovered it was a really exciting time until world war ii hit and then everybody had to scatter
2: yeah it reminds me of the, the movie The Mummy with Brendan Fraser. Yeah. They were all over there doing those kind of digs, but I think that was closer to World War II probably. So you're getting it right in the heyday in the, yeah. in the 30s. And,
3: and there are some amazing female archaeologists who were very inspiring, who I kind of, you know, took bits and pieces from to create my character.
2: Well, I can't wait to read how you evoke the Met, because that's one of my favorite buildings in the city. The architecture is great. I just love wandering around there, either on a school trip with my kids or occasionally there'll be something with, you know, cocktails there. It's, uh, yep. it's, it's an incredible place. That's yeah. a great setting for a book. I can't wait.
3: Yeah, it was fun to, to learn out all the, you know, secret places. Yeah. Oh, Very you, cool. did you
2: have inside access tours and things like that? A little bit, yeah. 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 Oh,
3: that's great. Yeah, they, they've been so helpful. They've been really wonderful.
2: Oh, I can't wait. Do you know the title or do you want to share the title or are we waiting on that? I don't have the
3: title. I, I can never come up with titles. My, my agent and my editor do... They'll probably figure that out in a few months. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm terrible at them. If, if it were up to me, it would just be called The Met Book.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the one in The Met. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> what? So you've done, obviously, The Radio City, doing mm-hmm. The Met. Uh, Dakota? You do do you Yep, Dakota? The Dakota. Yeah. I've done The, the, the Barbizon Library. Hotel for
3: Women. Yep, the New York Public Library, yep. Grand Central Terminal, and The Chelsea Hotel. All right. And Chelsea The Frick. Hotel. The Frick.
2: Oh, that, that is one of my favorite music. I used to write in The Frick. Do you know there's that little sort of research wing behind the museum? You could get a pass there if you're working oh, on yeah, a book or library. something like that. Yeah, yeah, so I'd go in there, and there long tables yes. like you know, monks used to work on. And, and then if I got bored, I'd go down and wander around the Frick for an hour and then come back and write again. And
3: It's so great. That library is amazing. It was founded by Helen Frick, the daughter of Henry Clay Frick. She That was her passion. She never had kids. She never married. She created that art reference library. And it's yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful and there's spot. beautiful artwork on the yeah. walls.
2: And it happens to be my favorite museum. It's just like this small little manageable yeah. museum with incredible things in there. Yeah. Okay, so on to the lightning round. Okay. Fiona Davis, your favorite book as a kid.
3: The Secret Garden. Yeah. Great one. I love that because my dad was born in India. And that's where of course the the female character starts out mm-hmm. in India. And then she comes to she's brought to England. And I loved the transformation aspect of it, that she's this kind of nasty, spoiled child at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, any editor reading it now would be like, no, she's far too unlikable. But she's just this monster of a child. And then she's brought to England and has to learn to kind of be empathetic and, you know, see other people. And she becomes healthy and finds the secret garden. And she's working in the garden every day. There's something about that, that transformation that I, I find I put in all of my books.
2: That's great. I love that. That's a great book. Book or books you're reading now?
3: There is a wonderful memoir by a guy named Patrick Bringley, And he worked for the New Yorker in his 20s and and was, you know, trying to be part of the literary scene. And then his brother passed away of cancer, his older brother. And he thought, I don't want any part of this. And so he took a job as a security guard at the Met and did that for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And he wrote this beautiful memoir called All the Beauty in the World. And it's this memoir on loss and art and what it's like to be a security guard mm-hmm. at the Met and stand there for 10 hours and what he learned from the paintings. He, and he's just a beautiful writer. It's one of the most beautiful books
2: I've... I've Speaking of titles, too, that's a great title. I mm-hmm. love that. All the beauty in the world.
3: Yeah. And he gives tours, by the way, behind the scene tours. So. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm.
2: All right. Well, you'll have to connect me. I don't yes. I to do that. Yeah. So one other thing I learned about you is that you will often, for charity, auction off the name for you know the rights to name a character in your books. So, what is the best name that you have picked up by that method?
3: Yeah, you know, it's in this book, *The Spectacular*, because I, there's a woman who runs the boarding house called the Rehearsal Club, which is where a lot of the Rockettes would stay. Mm-hmm. And so, I needed a name for the woman who you know is the the doyenne of it. And um, and it was auctioned off. Uh, you know, a character. They didn't. You don't tell them which one, but um, and someone for. Their mother loves my books and so she's in her 80s and so they bought that at auction mm-hmm. and her name was Mitzi Fleming. Oh,
2: Mitzi Fleming. Which is just Good. perfect yeah. for a
3: 1950s boarding totally house. Totally fits. You know, yeah. right? It was so what perfect. kind of auctions?
2: Like a school fundraiser? A or library yeah, fundraiser. Okay.
3: Yeah. And then they didn't tell her and then they gave her the book and they were watching her read it and waiting for her to get to the page. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's great. so great. Yeah. That's so fun. Oh my
2: gosh. <laughs> yeah. Um. So this is, you know, this is a show favorite, as you know, least attended book event ever.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I think after my third book, um, I went up to Boston because there's a book club there who are amazing. And every book I've done, they rent a bus and they come down and tour the city and Mm -hmm. the building, whatever building I'm featured. And then we meet for lunch at Sardi's. They're, they're great. And, um, and in fact, this, this year they're coming down in December and we're doing Radio City and there's 75 of them. So it should be quite something. Oh, that's great. But, um, and, and they were holding their kind of Christmas party. And I thought, oh, I'll go up to Boston and, you know, see everybody and join in. And I thought, you know, since I'm be up there anyway, I'll see if I can get a, a bookstore to, you know, do an event. Mm-hmm. And so my publicist arranged it. They said, yep, here's this bookstore. You know, it's, it's Saturday nights, the only night I could do. And I thought, oh, you know, I've, Three books out. This will be fine. And I asked um, the author, Hank Filippi Ryan, who's also in Boston, she's wonderful, to come and, you know, we'll, we'll do a, a Q&A like together. A
2: conversation, yeah.
3: It was like 15 degrees. It was freezing that oh. night. And I walked there and I walked in and there were two people sitting in the way back. <laughs> and, and, and then um, a couple of the employees came and sat. And Hank is just such a wonderful. She's amazing, and so she. We did it. We yeah. had this wonderful conversation, and I thanked her profusely. And then I wandered home, and by the time I was wandering home, it was like 15 below. It oh was just. No. Well,
2: the weather was against you there, so.
3: Yeah, and and you know you 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 can't you know. Hit well, good out for the you guys for doing and having
2: fun. It is dispiriting to look up and be like, oh boy, yeah. you know, nobody-
3: <laughs> And then if there were no one, it were, would be easier. Right, just leave. But two people who made all that effort, you know, you want to give. Them a good time,
2: yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's such a funny story. My gosh, oh. it, but you know, isn't it comforting on some level to know we've all had that story? And you know, yeah,
3: oh, everyone, you everyone, it, it definitely. And you know, you get to be Kristen hannah and you know, you're filling stadiums at that point. Mm-hmm. But everybody has has a story just like that.
2: Yeah, even Kristen Hanna at some point. I'm has sure. One, you know. Yeah, uh, a building or place in New York City that people likely don't know about, but should definitely go visit.
3: Yeah, you know in in Grand Central Terminal, there's a bar called the Campbell Bar and it's a secret, really.
2: I will be there in an hour I can't on believe my way you, home. You don't The Campbell Bar. You have bar? to check it
3: out. You, to get to it you have to go outside the building and it's on the southwest corner. You can't and,
2: act like from the main concourse thing. You can't get to it from no, You Go, go outside okay. the building
3: and you go kind of as if you're going to go inside, but you'll see to the right on the southwest corner, there's um, a sign that says to the Campbell bar mm. and you go in through that kind of side door and make a sharp right and you go up a set of stairs and you are in the most gorgeous bar because it used to be an office of a of someone who was on the board of directors of Grand Central back in.
2: Back in like the Vanderbilt. Yeah, it was called it was
3: called the Campbell apartment. But it wasn't an apartment, it was his office, and he had this, you know, it's like you've gone into a a Middle Ages uh, Venetian palazzo. Oh, my God. With I have these stained this glass out. windows. Is he it had, crowded?
2: Or is, oh, yeah. It, oh, so yeah. People, there, people know. Some people who people know. know. Yeah. And,
3: and there's a balcony where he had an organ for entertaining.
2: Oh, my gosh. Um, and you it go sounds up, like a great place to rent out for a book party or something it, like that.
3: It would be great. I can only imagine how much it costs, but oh, it yeah. would be great. Hannah will do it. Yes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Stephen King. Somebody exactly. like that. Oh, you'll love it. Check it out and let me know what you think.
2: That's very cool. Oh, mm-hmm. I can't wait to go look at that. The Campbell Bar. All right. Mm-hmm. What's going to be even more crowded now that you've uh, <laughs> let it out of the bag. Um, last question for Fiona Davis. One piece of advice for listeners.
3: Yeah, you know, I, I I would say advice for writers since that's who I, you know, that's who I, I, I get this question all the time um, of, you know, I'm I'm a new writer. What should I do? And my, my answer is always finish that first book mm. because it's so easy to write three quarters of the way through and think, ah, oh, it's not working you know, I'll I'll try something else. And for me, every book, three quarters of the way through, I hit that wall. And if you blow through it, you end up having a full book and you can see how you got the middle, the end, the beginning, how it all fits together. Mm -hmm. And until you've done that, it's really hard to write a book. You know, you have to just get through it. I remember hearing Laura Linney, um, the actress, talking about when she's in a rehearsal for a new part, you know, there's tech week, which is when you're they're putting together all the lights and the the sound and, you know, it, it's just this mess of a week before a show opens on Broadway. And she talked about how around Tech Week, she just feels like it's a nightmare and there's no way she can do it. And every show she just pushes through and, you know, does her Laurel thing, And it's true for writing. It's true, I think, for anything creative. You have to finish something and stick with it. And then you can go back and see, you know, OK, maybe it's not worth it. But then you're on to the next thing in a way that's that you're ready to, to improve.
2: Yeah. Well, that's great advice. As a writer, you can always go back and fix a mistake. It's one of the beauties of it. Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, that's great advice. Fiona, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in.
3: Thank you for having me. This has been great.
2: If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you.